And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Of course, it's 6.06 as we get this uh, hump day edition, you know, kind of underway here and, uh, you know, getting into the month of August. It's hot and, you know, the kids are all complaining about going back to school and it's August in in Texas. So there you go. It's just uh, where we are right now. Uh, Danny Ratliff joining me this morning as well because it is, of course, as as always on Wednesdays, uh, we get into a little bit of the financial planning stuff as well. Um, interesting stories out this morning, though, as we kind of kick off the day. The eviction moratorium ban, right? So we have to go back a little bit here into last year. And following the shutdown of the economy, of course, people didn't have jobs. The CDC um, passed a law that basically, or should I say it's passed a law because it's not really true. They passed a ban that says, well, you know, landlords can't kick their tenants out of houses being rented. And so, you know, this was kind of a assistance for people without jobs and of course trying to support people so they could stay in their homes that they're renting. And, you know, this this was deemed to be a temporary measure that's now gotten extended several times here as this kind of pandemic thing goes on. So uh, just yesterday, of course, the right at the end of July, that eviction moratorium was expired. And so for a couple of days here, there was a lot of concern about people being evicted from homes. And of course, uh, yesterday, the CDC recommended extending that moratorium through the 3rd of October. Now, this is likely going to get challenged in court. It is non-constitutional, violates contract law on multiple levels. But by the time it actually gets to court and and gets heard in court, will be past the October 3rd deadline. So again, it's, it's going to give a reprieve to renters in the short term. Now, here's, here's a couple of things about the moratorium, though, that we need to think about as, as individuals, right? So first of all, there's $43 billion of assistance that we use debt to fund that is designed for renters to stay in their homes. So we're going to give people money to pay their rent. Okay, now it's gotten hung up in a lot of states. It hasn't gotten distributed yet, but that money is sitting there ready to be distributed so now we have this ban in place and we know the you know the typical habits of individuals if we give them money and there's not an immediate demand for that money it gets spent on other stuff that's just normal behavior of spending by people right give me money i'm going to spend it and because you know one of the problems with all of these bailouts that we do is we don't direct the bailout money exactly to where it's supposed to go we just say here's money for you to go deal with these problems. And they say, well, I, you know, I've got all this money now and I don't have to pay rent. So instead of paying my rent, even though I've got all these stimulus checks and everything else coming in, I'm gonna spend the money on other stuff. And so we saw these outsized booms in the economy of people buying all kinds of stuff, um, but rent wasn't getting paid, other things weren't getting done. So, you know, problems with providing government stimulus, taxpayer money to people to spend, it needs to be directed this money can only be used for mortgage payments, rent payments, whatever it is. That's all you can use this money for. And in fact, we're going to direct it directly to your landlord. So give us the name of your landlord. We'll send the rent check directly to them. That would be the way to do it. However, that's not the way it's done. That's not the way we do it here. When we do it fast, we don't think about these things. And so we just pass these laws. Okay, but here's the other problems. 
the eviction the eviction moratorium while in its nature is intended to be a good thing and, and not arguing the point right a lot of people without jobs they need some help I'm, I'm not opposed to that at all the problem though becomes two things one is that the economy is based upon contract law you entered into a contractual agreement with an individual to pay a mortgage payment to pay a rent payment whatever it is um, ever since the financial crisis we have continued to come back and violate contract law on a variety of levels, right? People didn't have to pay mortgage payments. People don't have to pay rent payments, whatever it is. We violate these contracts. One of the key factors of the strength of the U.S. economy and one of the key factors behind capitalism is contract law, the rule of law. And why is that so important? It is so important for an economy to have that rule of law in place because that's why people will come to your country to conduct business. If they feel like they have the ability to do business or to invest into your country and not have the government come along and take all your money away from you at some point, then that's going to attract more capital. It makes the country more prosperous. And the rule of law in the United States is, is one of the primary keys that made the United States the most prosperous country in the world because there was a fair and equitable ways in which to conduct business and there was recourse against the violation of contract law in the US. The reason that other countries don't attract lots of capital and have prospering economies is because of the lack of rule of law. Nigeria, African countries, others where they're ruled by dictatorships, et cetera, and then one day you've got money invested there. Malaysia was a good example of this. One day people were investing in the country of Malaysia and the government said, you know what? We're just gonna take all that capital. Right. So it happens. Right. And, and so the rule of law is very important. And so when you start to violate the rule of law and contract law in particular, it undermines the very premise of capitalism in the economy. Now, the second problem, though, is, is that while we're trying to bail out the renters, we're not thinking about the landlords. And there's this idea, I guess, in government somewhere that landlords are all these big fat rich pigs sitting around in big piles of gold coins you know like scrooge mcduck swimming around in their in their in their saves of gold coins that's not who landlords are the the vast majority of landlords in this country yes there are some big landlords in this country black rock's been buying buying tons of houses and renting them out etc sure they can afford to to not get their rent but a lot of landlords in this country are people just like you and I and Danny and others, right? We've got one house, two house, three houses that we depend on for that income to bank the mortgage payment, to pay the taxes, and to give me a little bit of livable income in my, in, in my retirement years, right? We, we buy these rental properties as a, as a base of creating passive income and passive wealth for my family. But now those individuals who, in a lot of cases, don't have a lot of excess capital, the majority of their living income comes from their rental properties, as an example, or their job, they're now having to make up for those mortgage payments, rent payment, tax payments, all the, all the cost, the maintenance, the upkeep, et cetera, is all having to get paid. In fact, the landlords are still having to maintain the properties, upkeep the properties, do pay the taxes on the properties, despite the fact they're not getting any rental income coming in from the renters. And they can't expel the renter to get somebody in that will pay the rent. So this, this isn't just a simple one, one effect here that, hey, we're just going to bail out renters by not allowing that or by telling them that they don't have to pay rent 
And if we give them money to pay the rent because of the renter assistance programs, it doesn't mean the money's going to get from the renter to the actual landlord because the renter doesn't have to pay rent now until October the 3rd at this point. And that's just assuming that we don't extend it again. But here's the problem with this is that every time we get to this point of expiration, what do we do? We extend it. Now we're teaching renters that don't worry about paying rent because when we get to that point that you have to pay rent, what we're gonna do, we'll just extend it again. So this is really creating a very slippery slope in the rental markets as well as for the homeowners markets because again, at some point here, and as, as not surprising, we're already starting to see inventories come up. If landlords can't collect the rent, here's the problem. The landlords can't collect the rent. They'll sell the house. And with house prices at all time highs, this is a great time to just dump those rental properties, get out of that whole mess and start over when things get straightened out. Be right back after the break with Danny Ratliff right here on The Real Investment Show. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. Brent, did you know that every year 10 people get eaten by sharks? I did not know that. It's, it's you know, we, we worry about, you know, getting eaten by sharks a lot. You know, my daughter, we, we you know, my whole family, we like to scuba dive. And yeah. so about once yeah. a year we go diving somewhere. And I was asking her the other day, there was a shark movie on television. And I said, hey, let's watch this movie. You know, it's, <laughs> it's uh, it wasn't Jaws. It was one, you know, it was like. I can't remember the name of it, but yeah, anyway, some uh, knockoff Jaws it, it was movie. some knockoff Jaws movie. I said, let's watch the movie. She goes, do you ever want me to go scuba diving again? <laughs> so, but, you know, you know what she, you know what animal she does like? What? Cows. She cows? loves cows. Cows. Really? Yeah. She doesn't realize that 100 people die every year from getting stepped on by cows. <laughs> <laughs> Ten times the rate of a shark bite. Who knew? But she likes cows. Yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to start watching cow movies. <laughs> Yeah, but I think you know where cows are. You can put yourself in that situation where it's a shark. It's a little different, Lance. Come on. Yeah, uh, there's been more than one occasion we've been diving, and, like, you look behind you, and there's a shark trailing behind you. That's, that's happened, like, three times while we're diving. <laughs> so it's like, just sit very still, let it pass. Being trolled by a shark. Yes, more than once. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway. Well, Lance, with your luck on vacation, you should probably stop that. <laughs> no hey, you kidding. know what? That's all, my luck on vacations only happens when I ski. When I do anything else, it's fine. We never have a lick of trouble, right? When we go diving, have never had... A bit of problem traveling, flying, sickness, nothing. Knock on Formica. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, but Perfect. when it comes to skiing, every year it's <laughs> it's something, right? It's either a travel story. I mean, my best stories only come, if you've noticed, right? My yeah. best stories only come from skiing vacations, not from anything else. They're, they're boring. So here's your sign. Exactly. They're boring. So, <laughs> and we just booked our ski trip for this year. So, uh -huh. <laughs> so guess what? You'll have a story come January. Uh, anyway, good morning, Danny. How are you? Hey, morning. Good. How are you, Lance? Good, good. Uh, so, a couple of things. I was just uh, talking here about the break. You know, eviction uh, moratoriums, and, and you and you you understand this, right? I mean, you have a rental property, so you know, correct. This this you know what. 
you know, kind of what we always think about with eviction moratoriums is like, okay, great, we're just helping this group of people. And look, I, I'm not against helping people at all, right? I mean, I, I, I think it should be something we all do. And, you know, my family's charitable, your family's charitable. We all do these things to help others. And that's part of what makes, you know, uh, you know society better is by Correct. individuals helping other individuals. And, you know, it's always interesting. You know, we think that, you know, if you listen to the media, that everybody just hates everybody. And nobody does anything. But, you know, it's always interesting whenever there's a crisis, you'll see, you know, people show up of all races, creeds, religions, et cetera, to help. Right. I mean, you know, it's, it's human nature to do this. And, and so I get the sentiment that we need to help renters, you know, uh, potentially pay rent. But we forget we keep and as I was saying at the open, you know, we forget about the landlords. Right. And we just assume Correct. that these landlords are just a bunch of rich, you know, fat cats. And that's not really the case at all. I mean, how many clients do you have that have rental properties? I mean, it's a lot. It is a lot. And I think that it's substantial in the sense that many of these people do require this income for uh, to live on. You know, we have a lot of people that have moved here from other places. They go buy rental properties, and that's what they depend on to, to live. And now when you take that source of income away and you don't give them any reprieve, I mean, these guys aren't getting up saying, hey, don't worry about it. Don't pay your note for the next uh so many years or mm-hmm. uh, or months, it, that, that becomes an issue. And so I think it does have that snowball trickle-down effect over time, and that's going to become problematic the longer we see this. But, you know, one thing about the eviction moratorium, this isn't as blanketed as the previous ones. Right. This is actually, they're going county by county. And so this will be interesting to see, you know, their definition. What they're saying is this going to apply to counties experiencing substantial and high levels of community transmission levels of COVID-19. Right. And counties now, can come on and off this list at their discretion. Right. Now, here's what's interesting, though, is that right now, 90% of renters are covered by those counties. So, Correct. <laughs> you know, great. If you, have to, if you happen to be in the, the 10%, I mean, they've done this very strategically to make sure to cover as many oh, yeah. people as possible. But, you know, this is an interesting thing, though, Danny. I mean, what about, you know, you know I didn't get a break on paying my mortgage payment. Right. That's right. You know, nobody nobody gave us help for, you know, paying mortgage payments or paying, you know, and again, you know, and and when we talk about renters, we're talking about people that are renting houses. But what about business owners that have to pay rent for, you know, their restaurants right now? Right. So, you know, there's 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 a lot of things that uh, that, again, you know, kind of filter into this equation that, you know, it's not just helping one group, but whenever you help one group, you wind up hurting another and the question is just to what extent. And now that we're, you know, in, in New York, as an example, starting to shut down, you know, bars and restaurants again, you know, this is, you know, this is not going to be good economically going forward, which is going to drag this process out further in terms of getting the economy back on its feet. Yeah, so this is a real clever way of saying, hey, we're not going to shut you down. However, if you don't have your mask, if you're not, you don't show your vaccine card, you're not going to be able to come into these establishments and, you know, we'll see how people react to that because I think people are becoming a little bit more honorary when it comes to some of these these things over time, right. especially as we've let people get back out and now we're telling them, hey, uh, you know, you're going to be shut back in again. You know, it'll be interesting to see how people react to this. True. So, look, a couple of things here, though, is, uh, you know, kind of as we go forward and, and kind of looking at, you know, this is that this is, you know, we're, we're about to run up into the final tax paying part of the season. This is where people that did delayed filings for taxes are about to come due September, October. Um, you know, there's, and we've talked before about doing Roth conversions and, and, and trying to figure out ways to mitigate tax, potentially in this idea that with all of the spending 
that tax rates are going to have to go up at some point. Um, Correct. It really doesn't even it doesn't really matter who it is that's going to be in office. Eventually, somebody's going to say, look, you know, we have just spent way too much money. We're going to have to raise taxes. Don't really see a way that taxes don't go up at some point. Um, and this is one of the things that we've talked about a lot here on the show is doing Roth IRA conversions as an example to move those pre-tax dollars that you put in at lower tax rates that will come out being taxed in an IRA situation or a 401k situation down the road, converting that now, paying taxes today at a lower rate, converting that into a Roth so that those uh, payments come out tax-free down the road. Um, you know, But there's some tricks to that, right? There's a lot of tricks to that. And I think let's take one step back and, and talk a little bit more about not just what's happening from a tax perspective, but also legislative perspective in the sense that they are upset. Congress is upset that too many people have too much money in IRAs. Okay. And they've created this big wealth gap. So new studies show that 497 high income taxpayers had over 150 million in their IRAs. Nearly 25,000 taxpayers had an aggregate of 5 million or more. Okay. Now that which number is one, which is, is one, which is one tenth of one percent of the population of IRAs. Got it. I, right. I get it. You, so you and I know gap. this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a lot, is, but it's just the wealth gap. That's all it is. Well, and this wealth gap that that is expanded so significantly. So if we look back to 2011 data, mm -hmm. that actually shows that only 8,000 taxpayers had an aggregate balance of more than five million. So here's here's the kicker. Everybody has the exact same rules as far as how much you can invest into an IRA. Regardless if it's traditional, if it's Roth, everybody has the same income limitations. Everybody has the same exact amount you can put in. But you've had some people that have obviously been able to use it to their benefit, some in 401ks that they've rolled over to IRAs, others who've used these very, uh, like look at Peter Thiel. You know, that's been mm -hmm. the big headline. He went out and, and put PayPal in there when it was worth, you know, pennies on the dollar. Right. Um, you have other people who made very he was also investment. he was also he was also one of the invest the original seed investors in the PayPal. So that's where a lot of Correct. this money was created was by VCs that you know were able to buy the the seed round of these companies long before they went public. Absolutely, and it's stuff that most people you and I wouldn't even have yeah. access to, right? Yeah. Uh, but this is a very small percentage of the population. If you think about some of the things that have occurred with all the bailouts, that's only made this problem worse. Right. So they're trying to go after people for using the tax code to their advantage and making sound or, or good investments. I mean, some of these may not have been very sound, or we'd probably have a lot more people with money in it. Um, well, but, but, but yeah, but then that's also to your point, though, even with Peter Thiel, right? We hear about the, the ones that he invested in that made a lot of money. He invested in a lot of these companies that didn't go anywhere. So, correct. you know, it's, it's the, okay. you know, we get the, we get the one or two unicorns out of maybe a hundred different investments that he made that made up for all the losses in the other ones. But that's, we never talk about that, right? No, no, nobody ever talks about the fish they lost, only the ones that they caught, right? <laughs> exactly. Rarely do you hear about the one that got away. So, you know, I, I think that just a setup to what we're already seeing and knowing that they're already coming after us for these dollars. And, and so this is going to be really important, the Roth conversion scenario in, in many different ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if if you were to pass right now, your wife will take over your IRA just as it's like as it's their own. But if you have other other places that you want these funds to go, children, other family members, you want to leave a legacy, things have changed a little bit. It used to be that they could take these distributions out over their lifespan uh, under the new um, new acts that they've had, you know, we've had the Secure Act, we've had the CARES Act. They've made some changes. Where now you have to take it within a 10-year time frame. So 
you could diminish the the impact of these dollars over time because now you may be you may be giving this to your kids who have their at their peak earnings increase their tax bill lower the amount that they actually inherit uh you have to get very strategic on how you do this so we're seeing the Roth conversions can be so much more important, not only from a distribution standpoint for yourself, especially if we're in a, a lower tax bracket right now and we're going to see higher taxes, which we all suspect we will. But even further on, creating that legacy long term, I think it's extremely important. So interesting, interesting. Roth conversions were first allowed in 1998. They then became they they spiked. 2010, same same deal. Now we're seeing it once again. We're seeing another huge spike. I mean, Lance, every single day we're getting calls about Roth conversions. Right. And it's almost difficult to do these right now because we're still waiting to see what this tax code looks like. And they continue to promise that it's going to be retroactive. So we could do something that may be counterintuitive right now that, you know, if we wait a little while, we, we'd be better suited to do. Right. And so we're, we're trying to tread lightly in regard to this. But the numbers are showing most of the time that a Roth conversion is is going to be a much better thing long term absolutely and i think that's one of the things that we're gonna have to continue to address it and watch for but you know doing the numbers i think that uh you know it'll be interesting to see what the biden administration comes out with with this come right back after the break more with danny ratliff and talking about how to make 44 million in the stock market i uh, sorry how to make 19 million in the stock market there that, that's the story i want to get to how to make 19 million in the stock market um that and also coming up talking a little bit about um the um stocks that maybe you should think about buying in this kind of new covid lockdown shutdown scenario we'll talk about that with danny ratliff right after the break don't go away you're listening to the real investment show Welcome back to Stoke's Morning. 6.33 as uh, we get this Wednesday edition of the show underway with Danny Ratliff. So a couple of things to get into this morning. Um, I got this interesting email yesterday. I, I get emails all the time from people wanting to get interviewed on the show. And, and I don't, I, very rarely do we do interviews. Um, but other than like, you know, people within our group, right? Danny and Michael and others. Um, but it was interesting because I got this email and he, he says, hey, I'd like to be interviewed by you on your show talking about how I made $19 million in the stock market. And I was like, that might be a pretty interesting story, right? And I said, well, I said, I mean, you have to provide some proof of this. So he sent me his financial statement that for the year showing that he did indeed make $19 million in the stock market. <laughs> so... <laughs> There's an old story about if you want to invest like Warren Buffett, it's easy. You start out with a billion dollars and you go from there, right? So, yeah, the starting balance of the account was $44 million. It did increase by $19 million, but he did make $19 million in the market, right, on $44 million to start with. So it's not nearly as exciting. You know, if the guy started with like, you know, $100 and made $19 million, that'd be a story, right? Well, hey, it's a clickbait. All you all you needed was the headline news, right? I know, right? It would have been a good story until I actually asked for details. But there you go. Anyway, um, but talking about investing and, and making money, of course, you know, this has been, you know, I'm, I'm, there's a, I'm actually about to write a new article. 
uh, here pretty soon. I'm going to actually start on it today. So Bob Farrell was one of the investing legends of Wall Street uh, for decades. Worked at Merrill Lynch, and he has the famous Bob Farrell's 10 rules, 10 investing rules. And these are the 10 investing rules that you should use. And I've written, if you go to our website, um, realinvestmentadvice.com, and just put Bob Farrell in the search bar, we've printed his rules a couple of times, illustrated them relative to different periods of the markets. And, you know, they're, they're simple rules. Like, you know, investors buy the most at the top and the least at the bottom, which is talking about psychology. You know, bull markets are more fun than bear markets. No kidding, right? <laughs> These aren't real complex rules, okay? But they're good, solid rules for investing long-term. So I'm about to rewrite them for the QE era of the economy. So, for instance, bull markets are more fun because bear markets don't exist anymore. Uh, will be the new rule, right? So I'm going to rewrite all these rules uh, and we'll put that out in the next couple of weeks. But this is really kind of the point is it really doesn't matter what happens in the markets that it's always bullish all the time. And, you know, it's interesting if you listen to Jim Cramer as an example on CNBC on a couple of Mondays ago, we had that correction that lasted for a day. And at the end of the day on his show, he says, this correction won't be over till all the speculators are out of the market. The next day, the market rallies back, you know, half of what it loses. is like, well, the bull market's back. So that's that's the way this market is, right? I mean, it's very shallow dips, no real concern here, no real fear in the market. Investor allocations are at all-time highs. In fact, investors have never been this long stocks ever before in history, not at the peak of 99, not at the peak of 2007 today more exposure to equity allocations than ever before. And not surprising, right? We've all been taught now QE, et cetera, is, is, the, new, is the new thing. And as long as the Fed's doing QE, stocks can only go up. So having said that, Kramer out yesterday talking about what stocks we should buy in the, the next lockdown. So, so Danny, you agree with that? Or, or, and, and what stocks are we talking about here? Well, do you think we should buy these or not? I mean, I, I think that these could be sound investments either way. But he's talking about the things that did did really well previously. You know, your Targets, your Walmarts, Costco, Amazon, your big box or, uh, you know, your shipping box stores, right? Mm -hmm. FedEx, UPS. Um, you know, and, and so some of these like Target, he's targeting because, no pun intended, um, they're having great back to school sales already. We're starting to see numbers from them, you know, increase. We're looking at Amazon, FedEx, UPS, just because of the potential for people being shut back in. We think that'll pick back up. I mean, I don't know. I'm working from home. I see these trucks going up and down the street. I don't know if they've increased or decreased. I think they've continued pretty <laughs> steady one way or another. Um, you know, and so it, it's interesting to watch these things occur. And, and how does this actually play out? Do we see people dive back into those? Because we see this on a daily basis, almost that rotation happens so quickly mm -hmm. from you get your big tech, you get to your your companies like these or your large cap values, the inflation to reflation trade. Um, and so you could have almost a knee jerk reaction with this just based on the headline. Well, and it, you, it, no, and it's true. And that, and you know, that's, you know, people that watch CNBC, he's, he makes these recommendations, they run out by them. And so, yeah, you can absolutely see that kind of, you know, knee jerk reaction just from the recommendations. So, you know, which has always been one of the kind of the interesting things about the financial media, you know, as a financial advisor, Right where we're you know have where we're bound by the rules of the SEC, making recommendations can be very risky, right? So if we're on the radio and we're saying, "Hey, go buy this particular stock," 
um, you know, we can be held accountable for making recommendations to individuals without what they call know your client, KYC, you know that your client rule, making sure the, the recommendation is appropriate. But yet every day on, on the financial media, they just make recommendations all the time and doesn't matter what the consequences are. Right. And, and so and, and again, a lot of people watch CNBC. They take their recommendations from that and they go make investments. As long as markets are going up, it's great. Uh, we just kind of forget about the times that the markets didn't do very well. <laughs> and those recommendations that's, that's right. didn't do well, well and at it, all. It, it, and we're not saying these are recommendations by any means. Exactly. But, you know, it's interesting. Years ago, there used to be Art Cash. I think he was a UBS floor trader. He's still on CNBC yeah. some. I started looking at his headlines and I would just document because it drove me nuts because one day he could tell you to run for the hills. The next day he could say, if you're not all in, you're missing out. Right. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, if people were actually listening to these people, Think about how detrimental it would be. And, and man, the whiplash you'd have and the mental fatigue would just be tremendous. It, 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 and it happens. I mean, we see this all the time with, with individuals. But it's interesting, though. You know, the one thing we forget, and look, I, I agree with your premise, right? And, and, and even what Jim Cramer says, right? So, you know, companies like Costco, Walmart, Target, these are good, solid companies. Um, here's a good example. Yesterday, Clorox reported earnings. And Clorox, we wrote an article. Actually, I, let me give credit where credit is due. Michael Leibowitz wrote an article about two months ago talking about how Clorox was trading 11% above its revenue trend. It corrected yesterday by 11% at the open, right back to its revenue growth trend. So, um, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, you know, valuations matter. And a lot of these companies, you take a look at a chart of Costco as an example. Costco has run has had a tremendous run and full disclosure we own costco in our portfolio um you know but it's had a tremendous run we bought it you know 60 percent ago <laughs> it's up 60 percent did its sales increase by enough to support valuations at 60 percent and will sales increase that much more as we go forward i mean you know people are already shopping at Costco. And again, I talked about Costco the other day, right? We just had to renew our membership and, and for renewing our $120 a year membership at Costco, I got a free coffee mug. So, you know, the entire reason to have a membership coffee mug. Uh, but, you know, will they be able to grow sales by that much over the course of the next year, particularly with stimulus now coming out of the system, wage growth slowing back down to normal trends, savings rates coming back down? Um, are people going to have a lot of excess cash to spend? That's going to be the question, right? And, and so I think there's a risk to even these companies that, and we just saw this with Amazon, right? Amazon just had, just got cracked the other day by 7% because, you know, estimates didn't quite get there and outlook wasn't that great because things are going to start to return back to a normal trend of growth. And that's much lower than what we saw last year because of all the stimulus. Well, yeah, Amazon, though, made $113 billion mm -hmm. in revenue versus $115, I mean, right. which is a substantial number. Right. But, you know, that's a pretty big pullback. But could these be just the stampede? It may not even be the valuations. I mean, we know valuations have been out the window. Right. So could it be the stampede of investors hearing the news and thinking, oh, man, we need to jump in? And everybody is going to the same spot at the same time. Now, at some point you get burned, but until you do... You're going to continue well, to continue that behavior. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is all, but again, this is all Fed, all QE, and and I'm writing an article right now. I'll have it out in a couple of weeks, probably. Um, I've got articles stacked up till like the end of September. Uh, so, but I'm writing an article right now talking about the three things you need to pay for, pay attention to, and and one of those, of course, is the Fed taper. I mean, this whole thing 
this whole drive of markets has been based upon this flood of liquidity from you know the government and the fed well stimulus is now ending unless we get more right that's going to be the question um, and at some point, we may start seeing the Fed talk about taper. And when that occurs, valuations don't matter now, but valuations will matter when we start seeing that taper occur. When liquidity starts being extracted from the system, valuations are going to matter, and they'll matter a lot at that point. Yeah, how quickly will that happen when it occurs? I mean, we've got concerns. Fed Chair Clarita is talking today. You have Jackson Hole coming up. I mean, there, there's potentially some things that could mm -hmm. that could pop up pretty quick. Yeah. Well, and again, you know, the the Fed speakers is, and again, this is something that Mike and I talk about on Thursdays. Is you know, you listen to these Fed speakers, and you'll get five Fed speakers that all say different things. You know, two say we're going to taper, two say we don't, one says I don't know. Uh, so, you know, yeah. uh, and when you walk away, the markets, you know, just to kind of go back to the fact is, okay, well, there's no taper yet. But, you know, that's all these trial balloons that keep flo getting floated out. And, and the important thing to listen to, though, is that we are starting to see more of these balloons getting floated out about tapering. And markets aren't really paying attention to it right now. But these are those tests for the markets. Like, okay, if we taper, you know, is the market going to react really negatively? So, all right. So, you know, Fred, you go out there and say something. And he goes out and says something. And the markets don't do anything and the fed goes okay well i guess we can taper a little bit and markets aren't going to care they're going to care they just don't believe you right now that you'll actually taper that's the problem quick break right now we'll be back after the after the quick break picking up with danny ratliff you're ready to close out the show hey what does bicycles and you know all these types of social attitudes that we have currently what does that have in terms of an economic impact going forward be right back after we'll talk about it don't go away you're listening to the real investment show And welcome back to the show this morning. So um, real quick here, just a couple of thoughts this morning as we kind of get the uh, Wednesday show underway. I'm going to throw it back to Danny here. But one thing I was reading over the uh, last couple of days in particular is that you know, over the really since about 2008, there's been this uh, slow migration more towards, you know, social equality and um, acceptance of various uh, various sorts of lifestyles, et cetera, in the economy. And the one thing we think of, we don't think about is, is there are economic consequences to all these decisions that we make. And, you know, we don't think about potentially while we're in the moment and we want to say, you know, great. Um, as an example, same-sex marriage, right? This is great. Everybody should be a same-sex marriage. Okay, let, let's go with that idea for just a second. So, okay, everybody should be same-sex marriage. That's great. Nothing wrong with that, except for the fact that you have a demographic problem, right? And that has a consequence ultimately on growth rates of economies and everything else because you've got to produce children in order to support economic growth. And, and we can't even immigrate fast enough to support the demographic needs in the U.S. right now. 
Um, we now have less than two people paying into, and this is something Danny and Richard talk about all the time. And, you know, I argue with them quite often because they're going, oh, Social Security will be fine. No, it's not. <laughs> You've got 1.6 people paying in for 16 people taking out. It's not supportable. Um, because you don't have the demographic trend. We, right now, we have the lowest birth rate in the U.S. since the 1940s. So as an example. Um, other, other consequences that we talk about. Want to be green. Great. No problem. Let's all be green now. In fact, let's just get rid of driving cars and let's all ride bikes. Right? Let's go, let's go to the extreme end of this measure. Right? Sounds great. Right? We're going to be super clean. Everybody's going to ride a bike to work. That's not really going to work well in Houston or Austin. Too many hills in Austin and too big in Houston. Um, <laughs> So, and you need a shower when you get there. And you'll need a shower when you get there, especially in August. Um, but let's all ride our bike to work. Okay, great. But we don't think about that. Sounds great on the surface. And let's all move in that direction. Let's get rid of cars altogether. Uh, but now we don't, you know, pay for insurance. We don't buy cars. We don't, you know, pay for gas, which doesn't pay the taxes to support our, our roads, which is also the problem with electric vehicles because you don't pay for gas taxes. Um, you know, you don't pay for paid parking, right? All these paid parking garages. Um, you don't have serious accidents, which lead to repairs and maintenance. You know, there's all these other consequences economically that occur from decisions. And so the one thing that we have, to, and, and again, there's nothing wrong with making decisions to have a better, a better environment, right? We should all want to have a cleaner, better environment. There's nothing wrong with those decisions except we need to think about the consequences that those decisions ultimately have on economic growth and make sure that we are matching those decisions relative to the expectations of the impact on economic growth longer term. And we keep forgetting about those things. And we make these rash decisions to make major changes. And then we fund it with debt, as an example, coming up with this new three and a half, four trillion dollar, whatever it turns out to be, American Rescue Plan, we're going to have massive spending into electric vehicles and infrastructure and human infrastructure and all this type of stuff, all funded by debt. 100% of that's going to be funded by debt that taxpayers have to pay for. Well, where do the taxpayer dollars come from in order to pay for that debt? Well, it comes from the economy. If you don't have a strong economic growth, you don't raise the tax dollars. Your debt service requires even more. You've got to issue more debt, and it's a spiral you don't get out of. Now, when does it end? Who knows? GDP, uh, Japan's been doing this for 30 years now. Their GDP hasn't grown in 20. Economic viability in Japan is the worst it's ever been. And they're 230% of debt to GDP. So everybody says, well, look, it doesn't matter, really. They haven't, they haven't completely collapsed yet. Well, yeah, but do you really want to live in that economy, right? It's not a great environment, especially for younger people. And this is why we keep getting rising calls for socialism. So... It's just something to think about as we talk about and as we hear more about the upcoming American Rescue Plan, the money we're going to spend, how we're going to spend it. There's a consequence to that longer term. And all these decisions that we make, right, and whether you agree with them or not is irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether you agree with decisions being made on from everything from social justice to climate change. It doesn't matter what your personal opinion is. The impact that you need to be thinking about, whether you agree with it or not, is what is the economic impact long term? Because that's the effect on your outcome, personal income, not my income, not Danny's income. It's your personal outcome that you're talking about. So, 
again, just something to think about as we make all these decisions because these the speed of these decisions are now increasing at a more rapid pace every single day. I mean, as we started out, the eviction moratorium is a great, great example of this. We're going to bail out a small group of rent, 11 million renters. We're going to bail them out. Okay. 11 million out of 330 million people, no big deal, right? Small fraction of the population. It's not just 11 million people. It's 11 million renters, and then all the individual people that actually own those rental properties that were depending on that income that you just took money away from, right? So it's not a net sum zero game, and that's the thing that our politicians keep forgetting and that we don't do enough work on thinking about how to balance those effects. In other words, hey, I'm going to, we're going to, we're going to, you want to solve the problem with the renters? Okay, renters, you don't have to pay rent. But if you're a landlord, you don't have to pay your mortgage payment, your taxes, nothing, right? You don't have to pay anything on the house. They don't have to do anything. In fact, you don't even have to maintain the house. If they want to live in it and have grass grow to the roof, that's their choice now. They can mow the yard if they want. You know, but make it balanced, make it even. But see, we can't do that because now the banks go, hey, wait a minute, I want my mortgage payment. They can deal with the rent payment. I want my mortgage payment. See, this, it's not quite the way we think it is. Anyway, Danny, sorry, uh, just jumped me off on a, on, a, on a rail there for a second. <laughs> so we lost Danny. He's muted again. <laughs> so, <laughs> nope, I'm back. I'm back. There you Don't are. Worry. You know, technical difficulties seem to be par for the course some days, but... You know, those are all really good points, Lance. And some of those things you mentioned, obviously, you know, there's a feeling that they are very inflationary. And we're seeing inflation. They're hitting people's pockets daily. You know, so what do you think about, like, holding gold or gold equities within a portfolio? We're getting some questions on that on YouTube channel. Yeah, no, you know, it's interesting. I, I actually um, I had another article in my hopper. <laughs> uh, actually, I have it out, I think, on Monday, maybe, talking about what's wrong with gold. Um, gold is not performing. And in fact, there's a very big, you know, deviation between inflation and gold prices. And if we look back through history, one of the caveats has always been is that gold is a great hedge for inflation. It's kind of true. It's kind of not. Um, this is one of the times that it's kind of not. When was the other time that it kind of wasn't? From 1980 to 2000, gold vastly underperformed inflation and um, financial markets. So there's nothing wrong with owning gold. <clears throat> and the real problem with gold became when we came off the gold standard. So there's no longer a linkage between the currency and gold. You know, used to back in the day, if I had a dollar bill, I could go to the bank and I could change it for a dollar's worth of gold at the bank and I could just say, Hey, give me gold. And they would give me gold in exchange from a dollar. You can't do that anymore. And unless you've got a really smart barista at Starbucks, you can't buy a cup of coffee with a gold coin, right? If you go, I mean, or gold nugget, sorry, not coin, probably could with a coin. Uh, but with a gold, you walk in with a gold nugget, hand it to the guy behind the counter. He's going to look at it and go, this is cool, but I need a, I need $5 and 25 cents, please. in green, uh, give me your debit card. Um, you know, it's, it's not a means of currency at this point any longer, which de, de, causes it to detach from what happens in the underlying economy. So right now, gold is not a good place to be on a short-term basis. Inflation is outperforming. The only thing that's really outperforming inflation right now, unfortunately, is, is, is equities. And so we need to have more exposure to equities to make sure our, our capital is outperforming equity growth. Now, um, uh, sorry, inflationary growth. Um, is that going to always be the case? 
No, it won't be. And there will be a point that gold does very well relative to a declining stock market. We're not there yet. And what causes that, and this is the whole point of the article, is what's wrong with gold? Nothing except the fact you have no fear in the markets. And gold is, and again, go, going back to the idea that gold is not linked to currency anymore, it is now linked to fear. And there is a good correlation between gold and fear in the markets. So when you start getting real fear in the markets, gold tends to outperform much better. In fact, gold did well during the early phases of the lockdown. Um, it hasn't done so much ever since we came, you know, into this idea of that, you know, QE forever and, and, and financial markets only go up. You know, once we adopted that idea, gold is no longer a fear trade because there absolutely is no fear in the markets. So, again, it's, it's should you own gold? You know, we own gold in our portfolios from time to time. I have, you know, some, you know, physical gold um, in collectible coins. And my view, my personal view about owning gold is I wouldn't own, you know, bullion as a, as a function because it is solely tied to the price of the market. Own coin, gold coins with pneumatic value because pneumatic value will always have value, right? If it's a collectible piece, then that collectible value can exceed the value of the underlying metal and hold value better than just the pure underlying metal itself. So, you know, select how you're going to hold physical gold if you're going to do it. Um, if you're not going to hold physical gold, then just use gold as a hedge against fear in portfolios. So there's the short, long version of a quick answer. Well, you'll be getting some hate mail from this this one. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm saying you just be careful how you do do it. That's that's it, right? So, all right, right. thanks, well, Dan. Go ahead. I know. Hey, I know we're short on time, but tomorrow maybe talk a little bit about the inflation trade. A lot of people looking at tips versus equities. Yeah, how that may not work out for them. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that because that's all being driven by the Fed right now. So, but we'll get with that with Michael Leibowitz tomorrow as well. Uh, be sure by the website realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, since your questions, comments, hate mail. Always there for you. Realinvestmentadvice.com. Just click the Ask a Question button. Address all hate mail to Danny Ratliff. Um, I'll make sure he gets it for you. And, uh, of course, get our latest videos, posts, and more on the website. Realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great Wednesday. See you tomorrow. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the Internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a risk